0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
1: Hello and welcome to Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. I'm Jen Romolini. And I'm Kim France. Later today on the show, we'll be talking to the excellent journalist, Amanda Fortini. But before that, Kim, how are you doing this week?
2: Frankie, okay. <laughs> um, I've been trying to. I, I, I qualified for the um, vaccine, which is very exciting. I cannot get an appointment. I cannot get an appointment. It, it's crazy. I, I I refreshed the page every five minutes. I I called the I called the phone number last night. Waited on hold for an hour and then to make an appointment. And and then the woman answered and said, where are you? And I said, Brooklyn. And she put me on hold for quite some time and came back and said, yeah, we have no appointments in Brooklyn. So that's been making me kind of cranky. But then the other thing that's been making me possibly more cranky is that I scored like the shopping score of the year last week. I found this Maria Cornejo shearling coat, for $350 on the real reel. And I know that that coat sold for about $2,500 because I remember trying it on in the store.
1: I remember that as well. Go ahead.
2: Um, And it was delivered to my home. I live in a brownstone in Brooklyn. The UPS person left it on my steps and somebody stole it. Oh, no. It hurts my heart.
1: I mean... The thing is, it's. I'm so sorry that happened to you, but it's also like these small things. Like now that we're in, we're still on the Isle of Gloom. Yeah, you know? it's just. It's like every small thing feels like like I ordered something on Amazon and it just sort of again I ordered again on Amazon. Why don't I know better? Um, but. And it got lost in the ether. And then I ordered the same thing because that one was not coming. And I canceled the first one, but then they both came on the same day. (laughs) And I was, I was beside myself with rage because I was like, oh, the post office, I have to go to the post office. (laughs) like everything, every, every small thing is getting to me. Well, I, yes. How are you? I've been mostly filled with rage and, um, and stupidity. So this week, um, you know, in, in this week's chapter of how capitalism is ruining my life. Um, and also aging, I was on Twitter and I was watching, um, women who are probably who very decent and probably very nice women who I was just angry at for no reason, who are probably about 10 years younger than I am. And they were discussing um, their necks and, oh, my neck is going. And, oh, does somebody have a cream for your neck? And and every time I see a woman in her 30s complaining about an aging face, I just, I, I become very irrational.
2: It is crazy. It is crazy women in their thirties are the most beautiful women in the world. I mean, women in their thirties are kind of, they kind of got some confidence going and yeah,
1: they've lived some, they're not, they're not the total, like, you know, unformed monsters there in their twenties. And like a woman who's 38, who's like, I'm getting wrinkled. I, I don't, it makes me so angry. It probably has to do with the fact that I'm I'm so regretful of feeling ugly at any age. Like, you know, I'm just like, oh my God, I, I was so beautiful when I was 38. How could I have ever thought about these wrinkles anyway? So
2: no, you know, just yesterday, I too had a little run in with girls and women in their thirties um, because a woman I follow said something like the problem with being in your thirties is you can throw your neck out just by turning in the wrong direction. And I wrote back, oh honey, just you Wait. No, it
1: is. And you hate to be, you hate to be the person who's like, you'll see. <laughs> it's such like a Debbie Downer thing to be like, Oh, it's only going to, you, you look the best you're ever going to look now. Like all these like grandma things, but it's true. So anyway, so they're talking about neck creams and I had just been to the, as I like to call her, the dermatologist, quote unquote, really the lady who occasionally gives me Botox. And she had, we have been discussing my neck, which is really starting to go. And she had recommended this. She was like, well, there's no, there's no cream that will work is the bottom line. So they were all discussing creams. And I, I came in came in hot on Twitter and I was like, creams don't work. Here's what does work. It's surgery. <laughs> like a monster, okay? So then I went over to Instagram and started, like I just went on like, a whole tangent of stories. Like we need to accept our beauty. And do you know that I bought the cream they recommended? <laughs> <laughs> of
2: course you did. I totally did.
1: I bought it because hope springs eternal.
2: It really does.
1: And I like it. Good. Yeah. It's, it's by the way, if listeners want to know, it's, um I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Shani or Shani Darden.
2: Shani Darden. We'll put it in the show notes.
1: Yes. It's retinol. It see- I I kind of, I really like what it's doing to my cheeks. I don't think it'll do shit for my neck, but- you know anyway i'm super excited about the show today i'm super excited to talk to amanda we should get into it yep today on the show we have amanda fortini amanda is an acclaimed journalist whose work has appeared in the new york times the new york times magazine T, the new yorker rolling stone the new republic the paris review new york magazine and many others Amanda writes about art, design, architecture, fashion, but she's also a prolific profile writer who's recently profiled Patti Smith, Erin Brockovich, actress Michelle Williams, and Vice President Kamala Harris. Hi, Amanda.
3: Hi. Thank you for having me.
1: Oh, it's our pleasure. So you've been a magazine journalist for many years. You've had this totally prolific and prestigious and I think in a lot of ways enviable career. And it seems carefully curated and sort of, you've managed to escape doing any kind of real time in the women's mag- media hellscape, you know, <laughs> and you've remained independent. And I was just wondering, you know, how did you do that? It was that intentional, you know, Kim and I both took that detour into in women's media, which I, you know, two varying results.
3: <laughs> right. Well. I, I heard Kim's Kim's chuckle there. Um, <laughs> I, I did spend some time in, as you say, the hellscape of women's media, but it wasn't that hellacious the time that I was there. And I guess I didn't spend too much. You know, I worked one of my very first jobs. Um, well, my first internship was at Harper's Bazaar magazine. So I was I was at Harper's Bazaar when like Andrea Lynette was there. Um, and Gloria Wong, if you guys know her, she hired yep. me. She, yeah, yeah, she was. I was her intern. And Meredith. Anyway, so not to name a bunch of names that that listeners won't know, but um, yeah, that was my first internship, and then I got hired at Mirabella Magazine in its second incarnation when Robbie Myers was running it, and so that was like my first real job, actually. And you know, there was some of the some of the sort of I don't know what you want to call it, the sort of weird. Aspects of women's magazine where they the like
1: trappings. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. Or were they like, or those things where they like bring a birthday cake in and no one eats it because everyone's yes. <laughs> wild, wildly an- anorexic and then they put it on a table and people paw it in secret all day long, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And then I, I was on staff at Elle for three years, actually. Oh, wow. So, um, so I did, but I feel like no one remembers that, which is a whole commentary on women's magazines in and of it, itself, which is that. I do feel that the work that I did there was as serious as the work that I've done elsewhere, but no one noticed it, you know? It was like this kind of, I don't know, big gap in my career or something in the way that like kind of outside people perceive it, you know?
2: No, it is true. And I felt that way when I worked at women's magazines too, you never really got the feeling anybody was reading your pieces, including
3: the people who bought the magazine. Right, exactly. They were looking at the fashion, mm-hmm. well, I don't know. What were they, the photography? No, I know. Yeah. I mean, as I
1: fact-checked a lot of those stories and, you know, if they didn't have, you know, and editors when I was fact-checking would be, would say, well, could we get somebody more attractive as the subject? Because, I mean, and this is horrible, but this is what was happening because women, when they were paging through magazines, the thought process went, they wanted to see a beautiful, a beautiful woman's story. Even if it was a beautiful, if it was a, a tragedy, they still wanted it to be a beautiful woman attached to the tragedy.
2: Well, what I thought was so crazy recently, Elle magazine recently online, and I I guess in the magazine too, um, ran that piece about the woman who ended up with the pharma bro, the reporter who um, ended up with that Martin Chappelle. Do you know the story? It went very viral. Yes, yes, yes. And they dressed her up in like fashion for the
3: photo shoot. Gowns. Gowns,
2: which was just crazy to me.
3: I know. And it's one of the reasons I think that the story was received the way that it was, because they were like, wait, why are we taking this girl, uh, this woman and like gussying her up like this, you know, it was a it was a kind of strange decision. Very strange.
1: Well it was a throwback, really, right? I mean that's the that's because that's the way it always was and nobody even thought about it, right? Like Mm -hmm. we dressed up breast cancer survivors. We dressed up, we dressed up women who had been victims of domestic abuse. Like that was the profile you got in glamour. And it's it was just it's it shows how far we've come that it was striking to all of us.
3: I think that's true. Do you remember Vogue did a piece on like Assad's wife? Yes. Yes. And it was this big, there was this big outcry because obviously, you know, she's there at the witnessing human rights atrocities and um, yeah, they're putting in her ball gown.
2: A friend of mine wrote an essay for Vogue about um, having a young, beautiful nanny. And they came to shoot her with her nanny and her son. And the stylist took one look at, my friend and said, well, you're awfully hippie. It's
3: gonna be hard to dress you. (laughs) <laughs> they, they well did they had they had to dress her in line with her hippie style or <laughs> couldn't they just throw a ball gown on her
1: <laughs> no i remember i remember an essay like an essay a couple of years ago i don't know which one it was in but it was like someone writing like a personal essay about having her home burglarized and there was <laughs> a glamour shot of her on her bed you <laughs> know it's just right what are we what does it say about us that that that's what that's what editors thought we wanted Yep.
3: No, I know. And, but, you know, that said too, I have to say that some of the, some of the, um, some of the greatest lessons or, um, you know, of my career and some of the most wonderful people I've worked with were at L. I, you know, Lori Abraham was my editor and I loved her and she's so smart. And, uh, you know, I think Robbie really taught me a lot about how to, I don't know, be a sort of tough employee in the world, you know? Um, But, but yeah, I, I, that aspect is so funny. I remember working at Mirabella and there's photos came in of Mariah Carey and um, she was in one of her heavier phases, I guess. And they like basically just Photoshopped, like she was lying. I remember she was lying on a couch, like a divan, like a chaise lounge kind of thing. And they just like shaved like three inches off the top of her and the bottom of her. And it looked, it looked so Photoshopped and so bad. And yeah i have to say like
2: i feel like i'm guilty of war crimes in that respect because i oversaw (laughs)
3: 10 years of like a lot of retouching yeah (laughs) i i mean what were you gonna do you know not do it it's it's our our eyes are were i think i think we're becoming a little more acclimated to naturalness but um our eyes were like trained to perceive that as attractive. I, I, think. or
1: less, or we become less trained, right. Because of Instagram. Hmm. Like, I don't know if we, if we have any understanding what a face looks like, you know, <laughs> in some ways <laughs> and between, between Instagram and the pandemic, like what do humans look like? I'm not sure anymore. <laughs>
2: <laughs> this, this, this is a little parallel with your last week talking about how you um, think you're a loser, but don't know.
1: It was, it was true. It's true. That's true. This You're is questioning a big thing. Everything. That's <laughs> true. Um, but back to you, Amanda.
3: Yeah. Oh, I was just, I was just thinking about, in, you can go back to me, but I was just thinking about Instagram, which was I was looking at somebody's, oh, uh, whose Instagram was it? I can't remember, but some female celebrity. And I just, I think it was yesterday. I spent a long time trying to decide, is this a filter or plastic surgery? <laughs> and then I was like, Amanda, go do your work. <laughs> You'll
2: never I know.
1: I spend so no. much time on that. I spend so much time thinking that. And then if you actually ever talk to an influencer or, you know, a famous person who's managing their own account, they- they have so many apps that they put their face through before it ever sees the light of Instagram. So the, the, the fact that I'm even questioning this when I have the knowledge in the back of my head, when I've been told directly, oh yeah, that's Facetune. Oh yeah, that's this other app that I've never heard of and will never get. I keep wanting to believe that there's some reality in, in these spaces when there's not. Between the free work that they're able to get most people who have any sort of following and the face filters these aren't this isn't what we look like which is probably damaging us into aging but probably even worse damaging younger women probably
3: yeah but the brain resists thinking that it's a quote unquote lie or that it's fake or something it's like when, it's like if you are not kind of uh, prone to lying yourself if you have somebody who's like a who, who is a liar in your life, it's impossible to believe that, oh, wait, this person is not telling me the truth again. I don't know why my brain resists it anyway. Hmm. Yeah.
1: That's Yeah, that's really true about lying generally. I still, I feel <laughs> so dumb because I'm so naive. I'm old and I still don't believe that people are lying. I can't, I'm just like, how could they do it? It's such a childlike approach to the world. It's, it's, it's an innocence that, you know, because if you're not a liar, you, you just can't conceive of wor- being in the world as a liar.
2: I think I could be a little bit more of a liar. <laughs> Me too.
1: Yeah, yeah, here, Same. Here's to that. Or a yeah. little bit more of a liar to my, like a little bit more of a self-promoter, which was a question we wanted to ask actually, mm-hmm. which is something that's happened in the last couple of years or even the last couple of decades is you really or it seems like you need social media and personal branding in order to be a successful creative person, which is a huge travesty of our time that we make these like sensitive, awkward,
3: creative weirdos, then be like self promote, you know? Right. <laughs> like, how do you deal with that? Well, <clears throat> I don't know if you have noticed this or remarked upon this. Um, I'm a really bad self promoter. I'm not good at promoting myself. Um, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it on some level. I mean, maybe that partly comes from I my natural um, stance, I think, is like sort of as a writer, as an observer. I like reporting. I like interviewing other people. Like this is the first podcast that I've ever done where, um, like at all. But, you know, I haven't even done like the long form podcast or anything like that, um, which, you know, and I've written a lot of long form journalism. So, um, yeah, I think how do I deal with it? I, in some ways, I think I don't, you know, which is, I don't know that that has been a kind of great thing for my career, such as it is. I remember, uh, I, um, like some years back when Salon was still, when Salon was not what it is now, but was still kind of a, you know, Slate's competitor, kind of a, I don't know, a real magazine, I guess I would say. I don't, I don't want to slag on Salon, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I hear you. And, um, I was writing for them. I had taken Rebecca Traster's place when she was on maternity leave. And when I left, I asked my editor, who is uh, Sarah Heppala, who wrote that wonderful memoir, Blackout. I said, you know, what advice would you give me having worked with me for six months? And she was like, man, you need to be much more self-promotional. Hmm. She was like, you don't even have a website, which I still don't even have a website. Isn't that terrible? But uh, I don't know, I'm deeply uncomfortable with it. And it's something that I, I think about a lot. And I, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't have a good answer. Going
1: back to the self-promotion, I just wanted to say like, you're not bad at it if it works for you, right? I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal is having a career that's comfortable for you. And I feel very similarly about self-promotion. I think Kim does too, but I couldn't accept myself if I became a person I didn't like. I have to live with myself, right? So this success works for me, this level of success, because I don't, I don't want to do something that makes me dislike who I am.
3: It's true. I was just reading actually um, Simon Doonan's self-help book because I'm writing about it. It's how it's called how to be yourself. And it's actually quite a charming little book. And he was saying, you know, after a certain point, He was just like, I didn't want to run Barney's. I wanted to be the creative director. That's what made me happy. And I stayed there for 30 years. Like after a certain amount of success, I was just happy to stay where I was. And I don't know that I really think like that. Like, oh, I've achieved the level of success that I want because I sort of think more on in terms of like ideas and projects and what am I exploring now? And like, I want to keep being able to do the next thing, but I would not be like you were saying, Jennifer, I would not be able to live with myself if I were kind of contorting myself in ways that felt really deeply uncomfortable to me in order to achieve some, I don't know, some level of six, uh, you know, objective success or whatever. I do think it it, people have a hard time um, pigeonholing me or understanding kind of what I do. Sometimes I joke, like I write about art and I write about shootings, you know, because I've, I've covered two mass shootings because I, um, because I was asked to, and I was in kind of like the right or wrong, whatever you want to say right. moment at the, at the right time. And um, those pieces changed my life, but I also love writing about art and beauty and fashion and aesthetics. And I don't write about fashion as much anymore, but I do, I do like writing about the visual, you know? So, um, so yeah, so I think People have a, the, the outside world maybe has a hard time putting it together. But to me, it makes sense because it grows organically out of what I'm interested in. Um. I once had, I'll just tell you this one last anecdote. I once had a, I was writing a piece about Joshua Tree for, you know, travel and leisure or something. And it was for travel and leisure. And there was an architect that I wanted to interview who had this amazing architecturally significant house out there in Joshua Tree in the desert. And he said, well, I Googled you and I have to say your career just doesn't add up for me. So I'm not going to give you the interview. Oh my God. <laughs> it, it was a very male thing, but also a very, if you if all have any, have had any uh, interactions with architects. It was a very, it was, a, it was I, the worst people I've ever, ever interviewed have been architects. So,
2: yeah, the worst people I've ever dated have been architects. <laughs> it's,
3: it's really a real thing. I'm, I'm sorry, sorry it if is. any of you are architects
2: and I'm only talking about male architects. I know. And it was
1: so exalted at some point, like the Brady, you know, the, Mr. Brady was an architect. Like we were all told that this was the job of the, this is the job of the man you wanted, you know,
3: uh-huh. <laughs> I know, and I am, I, I am like Tim, only talking about male architects, because I've actually never uh, interviewed a female architect.
2: And I've never dated one. And now a word
1: from our sponsors.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments.
1: Support for Everything is Fine comes from Ritual. So I love Ritual. Everyone knows I love Ritual. I talk about Ritual all the time. I particularly love its daily, their daily multivitamin. And I also really have been enjoying their melatonin. and highest Sarah absolutely has done that for me. I've been on it for months. I don't even know how long, and I can really see a difference in the texture of my skin. My skin looks percent off and we're back i'm imagining you've interviewed a lot of people you had a lot of preconceived notions about or had a lot of respect for their work um how have those i mean kim this is something you you and i were talking about um, with people you profiled do you want to do you want to Speak to well, this yeah interview. no we were
2: just I've interviewed people who I absolutely idolized I'm thinking of one interview somebody I had 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 worshiped since adolescence and the interview was such a disappointment she wasn't what her image was and she wasn't what I thought she was um, has that ever happened have you ever been really disillusioned by a subject
3: yes yes absolutely and in fact, Rather recently, um, I well, I don't want to I'm not going to give anything away, but yes, it has, and um, it's really disappointing. I, I leave those I leave those pieces because after you, you you're disappointed by the interview, and then you have to write the piece, right? Mm-hmm. So you're like, oh my god, I still have to live with this person for you know however long it takes me to do this, and. I leave, I, I leave those interviews just thinking like, I don't want to meet my heroes anymore because this person was kind of a hero to me in many ways. And I had a similar, very disillusioning experience where they were just sort of extremely petty. Um, it, it, and it just felt like, to me, it felt like, um, no, you, you should be bigger than this. Like you should be more magnanimous. Like that this this is not commensurate with your art or the art that people think you make, you know mm-hmm. I don't know. It was so disappointing and it's happened to me a lot. And then it's happened to me where I've taken pieces where I was kind of like um, you know, on the fence about taking it or ambivalent and then I go and meet the person and they just, have surprised me. I mean, since this is a positive thing, I'll say that when I interviewed Mariel Hemingway, I wasn't sure about interviewing her because I had thought of her as a kind of fitness guru and you know a yoga person. And I, it's not like I have anything against that, but I just didn't feel that it was really a strong area of interest for me. And then um, she did this documentary um, that Barbara Koppel did, and it was called Running From Crazy. And it's just terrific. So I watched the documentary and then I was like, I really want to interview this woman. She turned out to be just so incredible. Like usually when you interview people in a profile, you know, there's the private self and the public self. And it's very clear to you that like the public self is the self mythologizing self. And it's the self that they really want to keep pushing at Mm -hmm. you, but you want to get at the private self. And for Marielle, the public and the private self, they were kind of collapsed. She was the same person like in private, very real, open, authentic that she was with people in public. Like she does a lot of suicide prevention and I went with her to some of her events and she was like her, all of her emotions were right on the surface. She was so moving to me as a subject. And um, you know, it was like this great experience that I didn't expect this kind of great gift to meet a human like that so it's a mixed bag though profile writing I gotta say
2: yeah I once interviewed J. Lo, and she was so terrible to me that I took to bed for two days
3: <laughs> well it makes you feel like taking to bed doesn't it yeah. my husband has a has a um saying he says never write about anyone who thinks that they're more important than you are huh. and that would really um, kind of do away with all uh, Hollywood celebrity profiling. (laughs) So I don't really go by that philosophy, but um, he does have a point because it makes you feel like just like a speck of dust, yep. you know, it
2: really does. Like you're part, you're part of the machinery and a not very important part of the machinery.
1: Well, I mean, yes. And that's this. This the same for working for celebrities. I mean, but the whole, the whole business of celebrity is a disaster, right? The humanity is taken out of it. We have an expectation of them. We're projecting something onto them. They know we're projecting something onto them. And I, I mean, I can't, there's nothing I want to be less than famous. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's really what it comes down to. I mean, sure. These people's behavior is terrible. And I, I, I believe that too, because I mean, the little, the little, I did it lucky. No one wanted to talk to me about accessories. I mean, that was a nightmare. And I was like, come <laughs> on, just give me a lipstick, anything, Avril Lavigne, anything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, the parade of B-listers we had on the cover Oh my God, Buffy. it was amazing and how rude. I mean, watching a celebrity, watching a celebrity get their first cover was really something because it was the moment where they knew they were, they were trying to step into something and they were trying to, to step into an idea of themselves. Um, and, and they were trying to step into a persona. And so there was just, it was all ego. So it was just an afternoon of ego when it should have been about mascara.
3: Um, wait, did you have to interview them about what makeup they were using? I had, oh yes. When
1: we were at Lucky, when I was at Lucky with Kim, I, for a couple of years, I wrote, I wrote the cover stories, such as they were, which was basically just like a paragraph or two about what the day at the shoot was like. And then I had to elicit from them, um, their favorite things. So (laughs) tell me, tell me about your belt. Tell me about (laughs) your favorite. What, what is your go-to lotion? You know, (laughs) and it was so overthought and this should have been the most simple thing in the world. You know, who, who's a style icon for you or whose style do you like? And I mean, it, it was, It was always contentious and I was always surprised because I was really nice and excited to be there and we just had this glamorous day of a shoot, but they were nervous and didn't know who they were supposed to be. A lot of them were young. So like everything they were telling me was so measured to the point that it was choked. And it it was just, I think in micro, what happens in macro when they're having a
3: conversation about their lives, right? Right. It is really awkward though. I'm laughing because, um, or chuckling in recognition because it is really awkward to ask them about all of the kind of material things that they like, you know, because it feels like the experience or the interactions should sort of be more exalted. Cause do you guys remember that magazine that lasted for like a hot minute vitals? Do you remember that? I think it was Josie. I I wrote for that. Yes. Yes. I wrote for that.
1: I was told I had to punch up and find new material about a story about pedicures. So yes, (laughs) I did.
3: Exactly. So I wrote a cover story for them about Adrian Brody. And um, I remember I met with him. I had to do exactly what you're talking about, which is interview him about all his favorite things. And I had to interview him at the Four Seasons in Beverly Hills. Like, I would just went to his hotel room. It was totally benign, but that probably wouldn't happen now. And he was, he just didn't want to answer any of the questions. And I was like, so can you tell me about your jeans? Like, what's the brand of your jeans? And what, um, you're, like, then I would try to ask, like, what do you do in your off time? And how do you think about your career? Can you tell me about your watch? Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's all they cared about. And he was really not very nice. Oh, to there me. Was,
1: it was it, exactly how can this be so hostile about
2: something so stupid? Like that was what I would walk away with every time. The thing that always got me, the thing that always got me and I back when I was writing profiles, publicists were very powerful, probably more powerful than they are now. And, but I would think like, I'm the person writing about you. Like, don't you wanna be
3: kind of nice? No, exactly. And I, you know, it's like, don't you wanna come off? Well, I have the power of the pen, but they they don't, that is not a thought that, you know, often occurs to sort of occur to them. Yeah, exactly. Well, who has been your favorite interview subject? Other than Marielle, I really enjoyed Erin Brockovich. It's like, it's like she, tra- she travels with her own kind of like charismatic, you know, light or something, although it may have been a ring light, but um, <laughs> <laughs> she looked, she looked great, but she also just is like, just like this sort of bright force, you know, in the world and doing amazing things. Um, I really enjoyed her and she gave me so much time. She was so generous. She, I think we did like three or four zoom interviews um, of like two hours each, you know, so that I could kind of understand her life and all of her work and you know some of it's quite kind of complicated and scientific so I enjoyed her that's pretty recent and then I, uh, like I said Mariel I'm trying to think who else, there's been so many people I enjoyed Michelle Williams quite a lot. Hmm. And, you um, could tell
1: you could tell you enjoyed Michelle Williams. That was a really beautiful interview, by the way. That was a really just beautiful profile. You. you did such a good job
2: on that. Now, for our listeners, where did that where did that interview run?
3: That was in Vanity Fair, and she was such a kind of precise careful, like thoughtful, you know, um, contemplative person who chose her words with such care, like she would stop and sort of think about what the next word was for a little while. And it wasn't kind of awkward. It was like, she really wanted to make an impact with everything that she said. And, and she, she's just very literary. Um, I, so I don't know, we bonded on that level. She was kind of an intellectual and um, had been so portrayed in such a kind of bland, mm-hmm. boring um, way that, um, yeah, I felt really lucky to get to kind of show people the quote unquote real Michelle or whatever, but she, she really opened up to me. I, at first she didn't, she was very guarded and very careful, but then uh, we hit upon the fact that I was living in Montana and she's from Montana. Um, her father actually ran for Senate in Montana um and like some years back and then she filmed that movie real real uh real women or certain women Mm -hmm. the kelly reich certain women the kelly reichhardt film in the town that i live in so once we kind of hit upon the montana connection it was like the whole thing kind of cracked wide open Mm -hmm. but um yeah i enjoyed interviewing her and she gave me a lot of time too she actually let me meet with her again after the first three-hour interview and then like we texted and emailed and so you know, when they work, they work. And then when they don't, it's writing a profile can be quite a miserable experience, it's, actually. It's so
2: interesting. Common ground is a really, is, is something that does seem to open doors. I remember I I, I was profiling the Beastie Boys for New York Magazine um, in like 1994. And I went out to LA and I brought with me for the day of the photo shoot. I mean, the day of the video shoot for um, Sabotage. That was the song. Um, a, mm, friend, I remember. A, a friend who had grown up in brooklyn around them and played all these street games with them and she hadn't seen them in years and years and years and they were like wait wait you're really familiar and she's like yeah you know we you know we grew up in the same you know pierpont street or whatever and then that just changed everything they went on a whole thing with her about that and you know it was it was kind of a tricky trick but it worked
3: yeah, something that I've found over time is that, or that I've learned over time, is that if you go in as, like, you're meeting them human to human, artist to artist, you know, creative person to creative person, and not, like, going in as, like, a f- obsequious fan person, fangirl, like, it really helps. They, there's a lot more respect for you, and, yeah, common ground, any common ground that you can find, um, that will sort of crack the interview open as well. Do you have a dream interview? You know, I'm kind of on hiatus from the profile right now because I feel like no one knows this. So pri- pri- I'm on a hiatus in my mind, actually, but um, I, uh, because I've gotten kind of weary of them for all the reasons that we're saying, yeah. but a dream interview, I got to think about this for a second. Oh, um, well,
2: we can go back to it if you...
3: Yeah, we need to go back to it because I'm not sure who I would w- want... Well, I kind of would be interested to interview the music producer, Rick Rubin. Uh-huh, you yeah. Know? fascinated by him. I know there's been a documentary about him, which of course I watched, but um, I still feel like I've never read a good profile of him. His podcast Mm -hmm. is so good. I know, and I love his Instagram, too, where he puts like sort of inspirational you know, uh, quip or quote about creativity and the creative process every day and then takes it down again. Yes, you and, and I are the only
1: it. people I've ever seen share it. <laughs>
3: like, <laughs> we're both
1: obsessed with it. I, we both share it. And I'm like, oh, I see you, Amanda. <laughs>
3: share it all the time. I mean, I like writing about the creative process. You know, I love I'm fascinated by it. I love how different it is for everyone. And I love when people can talk about it. You know, that So I'd like to hear about his. That's why I'd like to interview him. I love that you share it too, Jen. I see you sharing it there on Instagram.
1: (laughs) So wait, but I mean, going into that, into creative process, you're a writer and married to a writer and I have the same, I'm also married to a writer. How do you guys manage that without driving each other insane?
3: It's funny because it can be like chaos in our house. And I'm kind of like, how are we getting anything done in the world at all? People ask me this a lot, mostly informally. And I think the assumption is that it it would, it's a bad thing to be married to a writer. It's like, oh, you're married to a writer, you know? But I actually really love it. I don't know how I would be married to somebody who was kind of working a normal nine to five job and then coming home and expecting us to, Eat dinner at the same time every night, like keep a really routinized schedule. You know, I had boyfriends who were like business guys and they would like go hard all day. And then in the evening, it was like, well, let's just sit here and entertain each other. Like, this is my relaxation time. That isn't really how creative work works. Like, it depends on your biorhythms, of course, but I kind of am a night person and I get gather steam as the day goes on. Like you guys are getting me kind of as early as you could possibly get me, which is like 11 a.m. my time. Because as I say, I keep artist hours. You know, I just am not my best in the morning. And, and, then, and it's the same thing for Walter. So we're both kind of night people and we work well that way. And we understand that the other person's job is not routinized, not keeping to a normal schedule. We let each other be and let each other do what we need to do yeah. for our work. And then often the other person is kind of picking up the life slack because you know how that life stuff can just sort of pile up. We don't have any small children anymore, but when we were raising his kids, when I was helping him raise his ste- my, my stepchildren, you know, it was like somebody who was on deadline would not be making the breakfast, but, you know, the other person would make the breakfast for those days. It really works for me, I have to say. Sometimes I look around at the house and I'm like, oh my God, it's chaos here because we're both so in our heads. But- for the most part i'm very happy with the situation i mean how do you find it
1: i the same i mean also i you know i have an immense amount of respect for my husband and what he does and his his work and you know his brain and i appreciate having a sounding board and before him i didn't I think there's a connection you have when you understand what the other person does. I mean, even though our work, my husband's, and my work is very, very different, we understand. And if one of us is really stuck, we can either say, you know, leave me alone. I, I can't talk to you because I'm I'm chewing my head about this thing and I can't work it out. And that's okay because the other person understands. But equally, there's that moment where you work something out mm-hmm. with the other person, and I. I have found that invaluable and I also, because I respect my husband so much and I admire him so much and his his writing, when I am able to offer that to him, when I get him unstuck, I find that so rewarding. And there's a charge in that, there's a creative charge and there's, a, um, there's like an affection and generosity and all of it.
3: There's even kind of an erotic charge in that, I think. You know?
1: Totally, there totally is. Yes. And I love, I can't, I'm I'm sometimes like, oh my God, I helped him with that. That was so great. You know, (laughs) like, so no, I, I really like living with a writer. I mean, you know, my husband just is, has been working on a book and just finished a book and that was not so fun because anybody working on a book is not the most fun. But other than that, I think it's pretty
3: I know. I thought my husband was gonna die when he wrote his last book. I was like, and I'm gonna be an accessory to murder because I was giving him ice cream when he wanted that instead of meals and cigarettes and, you know, all this stuff. (laughs) I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying that it's like it it is you really do understand what the other person is doing. And it's so fun to be able to kind of help one another. Like I'm very internal with my process where I will just like sort of talk to him about it after I'm done. Like, this is sort of what I've done. Like, what do you think about this? If I'm stuck on something, he comes and stands at my office doorway when he's about to write something and kind of holds forth just soliloquizing for a while. Like, and I'm like, oh, he's about to write. And he's just like running these ideas by me. Now I know that, okay, Walter's getting ready to sit down and write. He needs to talk for about an hour.
2: We should mention that your husband is Walter Kern, who's the wonderful, wonderful novelist. I am such a fan of his work. And I wanted to ask you, you moved to Montana for love. You went from being yes. very much the, you know, you were, uh, you know, I was too, Jen was too little media kid scene stir, you know, in mm-hmm. the white hot center of, you know, the publishing world. And you said goodbye to all of that to go to Livingston, Montana. What was that like? How did you, how did you make that transition? And do you ever miss the New York media world?
3: You know, I miss New York City more than I miss being in the media world. Sometimes mm-hmm. I I often say that like I didn't have an original idea until I moved to Los Angeles, which was my stop before Livingston, because I, I I felt that I was just sort of, you know, when you're in the media world, you're sort of all like you're hearing everybody else's thoughts and all sort of agreeing with each other. And I think it would have been very hard for me to develop my voice and myself as a writer if I were still in like in the white hot center of it. Mm -hmm. But I actually moved for love twice. And the first time I moved for love, it didn't work out. I moved to Santa Barbara before I moved to Livingston for my ex, who is Reza Aslan. We lived in Santa Barbara where he was finishing his PhD. And then I had moved from the East Village. Like I was living on 13th between B and C. And I moved to Goleta, uh, California, which was so boring. You couldn't even go to a movie after 7 p.m. at night. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I cannot deal with this. So that's how we moved down to Los Angeles, because he was like all but dissertation. And we just picked up and moved down there. And then that didn't work out. And I met Walter when I was in LA. And um, I had sort of found, you know, film and media people that I was hanging out with in LA, but it certainly wasn't at the center of it like I was in New York after, I guess, a year, I picked up and moved to Livingston because he was going back and forth to see his kids. And I could tell that it was really taking a toll on him. And he was like, you'll love it here. Um, and when I visited Livingston, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I remember telling a friend and my friend was like, divorced dad, two kids lives in Montana. Sounds promising, Amanda. <laughs> 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 this was a movie producer friend of mine in LA. But you know, we fall in love with somebody, you fall in love. And we fell in love like in the first day that I met him and we're kind of very rarely apart ever since until he, I mean, except when he wanted to go visit his, or needed to go visit his children. So after about like, I don't know, a few months, he brought me to Livingston. Like I said, he said, oh, you'll love it. And I did. I kind of felt like I was home. I wrote about it in an essay. I just felt like this is my spiritual place. And I don't, I don't regret it. I think my Is it Gertrude Stein that said, geography is destiny? Mm -hmm. I think so. And I do feel that that's kind of true because I feel like it shaped the subjects that I write about. It gave me a real interest in place. Like I've written about Montana. I've written about Las Vegas. Beautifully. Thank you. And I, yeah, I just feel like it made me who I am, that move. But it was kind of, everyone everyone I knew was like, what are you doing?
2: I kind of love the way you guys met. I love that he slid into your DMs.
3: On Facebook, yes, which
1: is just <laughs> astounding that we were on Facebook and that a love came out of Facebook. It's in
3: 2008. Yes, at the end of 2008, I had just gone through a breakup. But, uh, I, I'm I'm really not censoring myself here, you guys. So I had just broken up with Reza, and I was sitting in the airport in San Francisco, and he just DM'd me on Facebook, and it was a very flirtatious email that was kind of like um, flirtatious flirtatious message that was kind of like, I think it was where in LA, why LA, what's your favorite color? (laughs) W.
2: That's awesome.
3: (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. I know this guy. His, he, this is obviously flirtatious, but he's very cool. And then I clicked on a picture of him and, you know, he was like smoking a cigarette in aviator glasses. It could see the girl taking the picture reflected in the aviator glasses. And he had dirty fingernails <laughs> um, when he was smoking the cig. And I was like, this guy, this is, this guy's for me. <laughs> this is it.
1: <laughs> this was so great. I mean, this Fantastic, Thank you for having
3: me. I feel it's a great honor to be
1: asked. Where can people find you? I'm going to make you self-promote
2: for a second. Sure, they
3: can find me on Twitter, um, which is just my name, at Amanda Fortini. And they can find me on Instagram, which is, I think, my favorite of the apps because I'm kind of an amateur photographer. And then, um, where else? I mean, online. Yeah, they they just can Google me. I don't have a website, but I will soon. (laughs)
2: Great. Thank you so much, Amanda.
3: Thank you both.
2: Thanks for listening to Everything is Fine. We're your hosts, Kim France. And Jen Romolini. Our producer is Natalie Rivera. If you like the show, be sure to rate it and review on all the platforms. You can also follow the show's Instagram at EIF Podcast. Email us at podcast at Gmail. And you can find me on my blog, girlsofacertainage.com.